Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Malcolm, how are you doing this afternoon? Absolutely spectacular. It's wonderful to be here with you. Love it, man. Love it. Um, well, Malcolm, thanks so much for coming on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Well, the one I am, there's uh, a number of them. Uh, I'm interested in starting new cities. Uh, so I've been getting really into like the charter city movement recently. Uh one weird one that doesn't often hit the public that I'm very interested in is panspermia. How do we seed new biomes on other planets? Um, very interested in the education system. How do we completely overhaul that? Uh, so right. that really interests me. Um, really interested in governance structures. I recently wrote a book on that. Uh, this has done pretty well with the crypto community. Um, I've also written books on sexuality and relationships to try to find out sort of how the human brain works. Um, but what I'm most known for publicly is, uh, panicking about population collapse and then yes. theorizing where we go from there. Uh, but if you go to like my YouTube channel, uh, it's called Based Camp that I do as my wife. Most of the stuff will be like, how will AI change government structures? Uh, yeah. you know, what will human likely human evolutionary pathways look in the future? You know, so just sort of like weird futurism is my thing. I love it. I love it, man. That's really cool. That's really cool. Well, I want to hit right at it right now. Uh, population collapse. I am definitely worried about, you know, the decline of fertility. It seems like a big problem. At the very least, the revealed preference that people don't seem to want to bring children into the world seems like something bad's going on. Um, but isn't, at the end of the day, this somewhat self-correcting in that the people that do have a preference for, for children within an industrialized environment will just outbreed everyone else at the end of the day? The they will. It is an entirely self-correcting problem. The, 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 so there are two downsides. One is before the population rebounds, you're going to have a massive systems collapse of sort of the civilizational system we've built because it sort of requires constant population growth. And we're not trying, like we as an organization are not trying to promote constant population growth. We're more like just trying to call out that like demographic collapse is inevitable and we need to start prepping for it. We're more like a um, a doomer version of like a, a global warming organization. That's like, oh yeah, global warming is just totally inevitable right now. Let's just try yeah. to get people away from like certain coastlines or at least change zoning right now so that we can in yeah. a slow way deal with this rather right. than in a quick way deal with it later. Uh, so that's one area. Um, Okay, so the second part of why it's a problem that it's self-correcting, or not a problem that it's self-correcting, but it's something that people need to better internalize, is that the cultural groups that are most resistant to this are cultural groups that are antagonistic to mainstream cultural ideas right now. So, like, if you care about, like, you know, LGBT populations having rights right. or something like that, that is not going to happen at all uh, if, if existing trends sort of play out. Um, but I think that there's some hidden things. So a lot of people, they look at this and they're like, oh, it's just the religious people who are going to replace us. And that was our assumption to start. And my wife and I are kind of like religious fanatics. 
So we weren't that worried about it. I mean, at least genetically, we're religious fanatics. And and religiosity is highly heritable. So, um, you know, one of the things I love uh, that Scott Alexander had mentioned in, in one thing is he's like, okay, yeah, you know, a quiproful family may have 10 kids every generation, but every generation we're getting five of those kids. Like we're deconverting five of those kids. And I was like, you like you understand how evolution works, right? Like this has an effect. And we we already see it in the Amish population where the longer a family's been in the Amish community, uh, the fewer percentage, like the lower percentage of their kids will leave the community. Um, so you are optimizing people to be resistant to your mimetic clusters. But I didn't have a problem with this because, you know, I'm a logistics extremist, whatever. But then we started looking at the data and um, Spencer Greenberg actually let us do a big, uh, uh, a deep dive on the data that he had collected with clear thinking on this like political thing. So we were able to correlate a bunch of things that we knew had genetic correlates with the number of kids people we're having. And it was like, uh oh, what we realized is it's not a propensity to religious extremism that correlates with having a lot of kids or at least not most. So, yeah. and I should have known this, like anyone who's hung out was like the skeptic community knows that like the number one thing correlated with deconversion is actually religious fervor. Like the, a lot of these people were religious fanatics before they deconverted. And I also should have seen this. Like if you look at like the far progressive community, a yeah. lot of these people clearly have whatever the genetic tendency is to like religious foaming at the mouth. Um, yes. I haven't had a Christian try to convert me in like eight years yet. I don't go, you know, two weeks without somebody trying to get me to join this like progressive cult. So, um, you know, I, this community is, is done a very good job of actually getting these people with a propensity, a sociological right. propensity to religious extremism. So right. what actually was associated with a high fertility rate, it's like, gosh, I should have seen this. It's staying in your religious community, but what's correlated with staying in your religious community uh, or traditional community? Because religion really doesn't have anything to do with it. It's more like they're operating off a of sort of older code. Um, and we can get to that analogy because I actually do want to dig into that a lot more in the future because it's actually really interesting how the code sort of updates. But anyway, um, uh, what it turns out is most correlated with it is uh, it's sort of an intrinsic disgust with anyone outside your tribe. Um, so a, a tendency to be like, nah, 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 whenever somebody's talking to you who's not part right. of your tribal group. And this is seen in the data uh, as like, well, racism, uh, not feeling comfortable with your kids dating people like outside your ethnic group or outside your religion. Um, a, a lot of stuff like that. And also for whatever reason, a drive towards authoritarian governing structures. Like they really like strict hierarchies and authoritarianism. Um, um, and so this is not traditional conservatism as we understand it or traditional religiosity as we understand it. It's what's called the far right authoritarian personality cluster, uh, which in research is shown to be heavily genetic as well. It actually appears in far left communities, but it was named by, it's usually considered a lot of negative traits and it was named by people in academia. So of course they called it the far right. It's what leads somebody to when they become progressive, like join Antifa, like just this intrinsic, like everyone who's right. not in my group isn't really human. Um, and that scares me because what this leads to is what we call to sort of the isisification of the planet. Like we are afraid of idiocracy, like nice, you look at idiocracy and everyone in the idiocracy movie is like fundamentally well-meaning, but that's not actually what's being selected for. And, and, and again, when we say ISIS, we don't mean Muslim, you know, there's ISIS like Christians, there's ISIS like Jews. Every religious group has this sort of like everyone who's not us needs to go community. Um, and that's the future of the planet. And that 
absolutely terrified me. And that's when I really began to advocate for this stuff publicly uh, because I knew it was a problem before. I think a lot of people know it's a problem, but they're like, oh, it'll self-correct with like the religious community and religious community is, is pretty nice. So whatever. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. It's really interesting. It's really interesting um, observation there. And demographics is definitely destiny at the end of the day and, and something we should be concerned about. Um, Talking about demographics is destiny. I mean, I can talk about one of the things. My, my wife, like we're not like, feminist, but we do believe in like broad gender equality, like women not being treated like basically house slaves. Um, and yet, uh, like it should be a thing that people who are like, even people with like a conservative mindset, but, but who are like broadly gender egalitarian need to be pretty freaked out about where the future is going because, um, <laughs> terrifyingly, these groups just have terrible fertility rates. Like the only groups that really have good fertility rates are the ones that treat women, uh, in a way that that I think we'd find pretty distasteful, um, and and that that I think should terrify anybody who who believes in sort of broad equality within a society, um, and that 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 is you know when you talk about demographics as destiny, even even I think a conservative vision of the future, uh, where we're heading is way further right than that. Right. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, do you have any hope for you know? some of the technology we've got coming online shortly um, where we've just been able to scoot farther and farther back um, just to how young babies can be in preterm and survive outside the womb. If we can keep scooting that back far enough, you know, eventually we'll have artificial wombs. You know, a lot of trads, conservative people are, are very against this for reasons I, I, I can't quite wrap my mind around. But, um, you know, doesn't this like – don't you, don't you think they'll, they'll, there are technological solutions that will take the pressure off and make it easier to have children and and maybe correct some of these uh, pain points? So this is this brings me to two really interesting points. One is is a lot of trad groups that are against assisted reproductive technology. Uh, specifically, an example of these would be conservative Catholics. One of the things that we've actually aired because you know I've got a lot of conservative. It's, it's a group that I like. I like the conservative Catholic community, and I'd like them to exist in the future. Um, but, uh, their social norms, because they're operating on, on sort of older technology that was optimized around a previous human condition, it doesn't take into account that like sperm rates have fallen 50 per, over 50% in the last 50 right. years. Yeah. You know, the testosterone rates, what is it like 30% in the last 20 years, uh, that we are biologically becoming an infertile species. And that if you fastidiously refuse access to this technology, you are going to be outcompeted in terms of reproduction by other communities. And so I think many of these communities will, well, let's say slivers of them that are open to this technology will be the iterations of them that survive. I hope if an iteration survives, just because humans are rapidly becoming pretty infertile. And you could say that, well, their communities will breed in a way where they'll become resistant to whatever's causing this infertility in, in, in our environments. Um, I mean, that, that brings up two questions. One is, I'm not going to say it's intentional, like something's in the water, but what I am saying is that there is a sort of an aggressive push to not care that people are becoming infertile if it doesn't have other health effects. Um, so that's sort of being like, like the, the level of this sort of pollutant in our environment, I think is just going to get really high in the near future. Uh, the, the other thing to consider is um, uh, what you were talking about this technology. I think we're pretty close to artificial wombs. You know, obviously given that I try to funnel a lot of money to this research. So a lot of people, because I'm sort of the head above water on, on, on all of this bio accelerationist stuff. 
Um, you know, the companies that are secretly working in these spaces come to me and the people who secretly want to fund those companies come to me. Um, and, and I try to make those connections for them. Like the, basically the underground railroad of, of, of weird fertility technology. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'd say that, that a lot of this technology is a lot further along than the public knows. And I had mentioned, you know, I've been really interested in charter cities and this is actually where this gets interesting to me is, uh, you know, putting together potentially special economic zones that have different laws around this technology, because the reason why a lot of it is is really sort of worried about being public at this point is because, uh, you know, of, of, of laws being placed around it, which I think would be really sad, because if you don't do this with artificial wombs, you know, look at the countries uh, that are having these fertility crises right now and that are further along than us and, and and look at the decisions they're making at the government level. I mean, Iran's been at this for 10 years at this point. You know, yeah. they they their fertility since 2014, they've had terrible fertility rates. And this is something a lot of people get wrong. They think like Muslim populations have high fertility rates. M conservative Muslim populations are not as susceptible to fertility crash as uh, Eastern conservative populations, you know, like South, South a Asians mm -hmm. and East Asians. Uh, but they're, they're certainly more... Uh, susceptible than conservative and uh, Christian and conservative uh, Jewish communities, which are the most resistant to fertility collapse, which which goes against a lot of narratives people have where they're like, oh, this must be like preserving white people thing. And it's like white people are like, like the, the conservative Christian and conservative Jewish communities are the most fine communities right now, given where things are. Um, but anyway, to this technology, but I think that there's other cool technology, you know, out there. My family is famous for uh, polygenically selecting, uh, you know, one of our kids. And, and we hope to do that moving forwards. Um, and, and that means, you know, we're looking at their genes and, and we're trying to make choices around that. And a lot of people are like, why would you do this? You know, it used to be up until fairly recently, like 50% of human kids died. So if you don't select before a kid is born, the dysgenic effects that, that are going to begin to become crude will significantly lower the quality of human life in just like three or four generations from now, because we're only a few generations into most kids not dying. So uh, I think that people are largely underestimating, you know, either you kill them after they're born, which is super unethical, or you, you keep everyone alive with the existing fertility technology, which is going to lead to, uh, you know, the, the basically walking tumor balls at, at some point. Right, right. It's interesting. It's interesting to, 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 to chart it out, right? Um, okay, very, 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 very interesting. Very interesting. Um, so you're interested in, in city design as well. I'm going to take a left-hand turn here. You know, uh, why are you interested in, in city design? And, and perhaps a broader question is what ties all your interests together at the end of the day? Do you have like a, a theory or a, a theme of, uh, you know, things you're interested yeah, yeah, in yeah. That, that maybe? Oh, I just really, I mean, I, 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 my goal is to within this generation or eventually, you know, take over the world. Um, <laughs> joking but but i guess what i mean is uh my 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 broad thesis is always trying to look at, at future events from the information we have right now about the present right and using the predictions i have around those future events to try to chart the course of human civilization and ensure a bright future for our species uh but that uh, given the pivotal sort of turning point that we're at right now that right. requires some um pretty precise action be taken in our generation to, to ensure any sort of, well, to ensure the dark age that we're going into is a short one and, and, and not a permanent one. Um, right. Because, uh, you know, human civilization has gone through a cycle of prosperity and bust a number of times in the past. 
but we've never hinted, hit a dark age with, with nukes before. We, we've never, you know, this is, this is going to be pretty different than dark ages we've hit in the past. And it's, it's something that really scares me. So as to why cities are interesting to me. So if you look historically at uh, human populations, um, you know, the past 500 years or so, uh, the, the economy has grown on average. If you shotgun your money onto the economy, you know, you're going to uh, grow. You know, idiots yep. can make money on the economy. And what that means is that the stock market is broadly a safe place to store your assets. So that's what people do. And the same way in China, you know, real estate for a long time has been considered a broadly a safe place to store your assets. They don't put a lot of their money in the stock market there. It's, it's 73% of household incomes in, in, in real estate there. But anyway, and, and I can get to China stuff. That's another thing that interests me. Um, but anyway, okay, stock market. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so. Uh, the problem is, is the reason why the stock market's been growing on average is, you know, for the past uh, 500 years, uh, we've had an exponentially growing population, uh, you know, so an exponentially growing number of workers and consumers and yep. a linearly growing productivity per worker and consumer. Uh, and a lot of people think that the productivity growth has been exponential uh, because the technology growth has been exponential, but that's not true. If you look at like graphs, it's been broadly linear. Uh, and so if the population begins to flatline or begin to decline exponentially, you're going to deal with an economy that is decreasing on average every year. And then people are like, well, what about people in the, like developing world countries? So a lot of people, first of all, they don't know how bad fertility collapse is. They're like, yeah, but you know, we can import people from, you know, Latin America. It's like, dude, Latin America fell below repopulation rate in 2019. You know, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean combined fell below replacement rate. This is by the UN's own numbers, and they're known to uh, be aggressive with their fertility numbers. Um, so, yeah, no, really the only countries that are still, you know, have high fertility rate, most of them are in Africa. And so people are like, and, and most of them almost, generally the rule is that once a country goes above 5,000 USD per year, uh, in average salary, it falls below repopulation rate. And people are like, well, those countries still have a growing population. And it's like, yeah, but definitionally, they also do not matter in terms of the world economy because they don't have much money. And as they make more money, their population will also collapse, as has happened everywhere. And when you import them to wealthy countries, their population collapses. In the US, the average first generation immigrant uh, fertility rate is only 1.7. You know, um, so one, I really don't like uh, that the developed world's economy is is increasingly reliant on keeping the developing world poor. Like that's not a great like economic system that we've set up. So what does this mean? So the world's economy declining on average every year. What it means is you can't put your money on the stock market or not in the way we used to broadly put money on the stock market. Right. So all of a sudden you're gonna have mass withdrawals from the stock market, right? It's one thing if, if an asset is in a recession, it's another thing if you know that it will on average always decline, right? So that being the case, then where's a safe place to put your money? Because there aren't many. Um, and the answer is on any technophilic cultural cluster uh, that has a high fertility rate. I mean, high fertility rates in general are going to be a good investment. You know, like Amish, uh, land around Amish community is going to be a good investment for a long time. Right, right, right. Um, and I mean, this is the thing with like crypto land investment stuff like this. We've in a long time lived in a world where if you bought an asset that was scarce, 
like like anything that had like a definable quantity, its value would increase because the number of people trying to buy it was increasing because the human population was increasing. Well, that's not happening. Our whole economic underpinning changes, but potentially in a good way, because I mean, human lives matter again. Human families matter again. Cultures matter again. So this is where the whole charter city thing comes into play. Um, if, if you know, you're not able to create, uh, you know, move the political winds in a large country, like ideally, let's fix things in the United States. But if we can't fix things in the United States, well, then it does make sense to create a small cultural cluster uh, that is technophilic and does have social institutions that can encourage a high fertility rate because it would make sense for the world's sort of capital to flow disproportionately into these sort of haven communities uh, that are culturally isolated and high fertility and, and through that cultural isolation resistant to whatever these sterilizing mimetic sets are that are spreading in the larger population. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious though, why, uh, you know, you mentioned, okay, why isn't this reflected in asset prices, particularly in like, you know, US equities or something like this? Yeah, so I first started caring about this when I was in Korea. I was a venture capitalist out there. And you know, one thing yeah. I think you'll notice is a lot of the times the people who are complaining about this, uh, they often have some sort of background in venture capital. And that's because that's the one area where you have to model like 50 years out. You know, if you're on Wall Street, you're modeling five, 10 years out, you're not noticing this in all of your models. But being in venture capital and being a venture capitalist in South Korea, which is where I started in that, um, I had to model, you know, 50, 100 years out, you know, yeah. what's, what's the future of the economy? And I kept noticing the same thing. And the South Korea's current fertility rate, which is, um, 0.78 right now. Google has it at like 0, 0.82, but you've got to look at like the actual latest numbers. That means yeah. for every 100 South Koreans, there's going to be 5.9 great grandchildren. Um, that is bad. Uh, even yeah. if you look at the Google okay. numbers, like 0.8, you're looking at like 6.4 great grandchildren. Right, but right. but it's, it, it's, it's, it's catastrophic. And I remember I went to the other partners in my firm and I was like, uh, like there is no future here. Like you guys know this, right? Like we broadly yeah. understand uh, that the, there is no long-term economic future for Korea. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But we just pretend that's not the case because like our investments don't make sense if we accept it. This is one of those problems where if you accept how big it is, like everything starts to fall apart. In the US right now, if our fertility rates continues to decline at the rate it has over the past 10 years, and you assume one generation every 30 years, that means for every 100 Americans, it will be only 4.3 great-grandchildren. Um, so... It's bad, uh, but okay, so you're like, okay, well, what about, um, and people are like, yeah, but surely this never happens where like economics just doesn't adjust to something that's like really obvious in the data. Well, look at debt pricing on Florida right now. If I take out a 30-year loan on a house in the middle of Florida, it costs the same as a 30-year loan on a Florida atoll. Like even conservatives can admit those atolls yeah. aren't gonna be there in 30 years. So like, why haven't things adapted? Just the first company hasn't made the move that caused the panic yet. Um, right. And I think that that's what you're really going to see is, is you're not, but when this happens, it will happen all at once. And, and where's it going to start? Where do the dominoes start falling? Southeast Asia. Keep your eyes on Southeast Asia. Uh, China is probably going to be where we're going to see it. So China, when you talk about a collapsing fertility rate, people think this is like a one child holdout. It's like not a one child holdout. In 2020, their fertility rate yeah. fell 20% year over year. In 2021, it fell 13% year over year. Year over year. These numbers are insane. You're then using 2022, zero COVID, it's over. It's going back up. It went back up 0.18%. Like the level of China is, is 
astronomical. Um, and, and China is already beginning to like ban, you know, vasectomies. It looks like, you know, banning abortions yeah. is, is very soon. Um, well, Malcolm, Malcolm, I want to jump right in there and I do have a question. So the China example, I think it's a great example that, that may illustrate an interesting point here about this whole, what's going on with fertility. Um, I often feel like, you know, having kids is a revealed preference about the future. You know, how good do you think your children's lives will be? And the absolute collapse of fertility seems to coincide in China, you know, with a lot of what, you know, Xi's dictator for life, a lot of, you know, th- this is probably not a great place to live in. It's a very authoritarian country. Every move is monitored. Maybe it's just not a great place to live. And America has the highest fertility rate in kind of the developed world. And maybe because it's slightly better than a- everyone else, yeah, except for Israel, right? Ex- Israel, uh, you know, but Israel is very small, you know, it's religious and, and but, but yeah, is it just reflect our expectations about the future? Yeah. So remember how I said, like, where would it make sense to invest? Like yeah. if, uh, if we don't start a charter city, the obvious place now is Israel, um, yeah. uh, just in terms of, you know, a, a technophilic population with a high fertility rate. I mean, obviously right. the, the Haredi are, you know, setting the numbers off a bit. But even if you look at the secular population in Israel, it's it's got a, an above replacement fertility rate, which yeah. no other secular population in the world does. Right. Um, so you mentioned something there that I think is very interesting and it's something that we should pull on. So typically, the more wealth the country has, the lower its fertility rate is going to be, um, with a few exceptions that you'll notice pretty, you know, you're looking at China, you're looking at Eastern Europe, their fertility rates are really low. And it's like, what's going on there? And and here's what it looks like is happening. And and I think you called it exactly. Um, In China, you know, you have like the laying flat movement. You have the we are the last generation movement. Um, if, if people aren't familiar with it's a, during COVID that some like draconian, like government stooge went up to this young person's house and they go, this will affect you for, for your family and the next three generations of your family. Yeah. And they go, oh, well, we are the last generation of our family. And they slammed the door in his face. Um, yeah. and, uh, they get caught on as a meme and trader because a lot of people felt that way. You know, when it was a yeah. flat movement, you know, it's another big thing that a lot more people have heard of. Um, but, but. What you see is a lot of young people in China, when the government says, you know, you need to have more kids, they're like, so what? To make you wealthier? To maintain this house of cards you've built that no longer has social mobility? In right. in, in the U.S. populations that are still having kids, you know, they believe in social mobility. They believe in a in a bright, prosperous future for our country. And if you look at Israel, you know, people are like, what, what's, what's Israel's secret? Uh, it's it's the Jews like being Jews and and they're like, yeah, we should do more of this. This, this, seems, yep. this seems to be working, this Jewish thing. Right. Um, and uh, uh, well, and they feel like when they're having kids, like when their government or their social group tells them, you know, have kids, they're not doing it for some like economic elite to feast on their children like vampires. They're doing it because, they, you know, they believe in their cultural group and they think that they're leading to like cultural thriving. And, right. and, and that's, a really positive thing about the future. So a lot of this sounds really negative, right? It's like, oh gosh, you know, you're dealing with a systems collapse and it's like, yeah, my kids will have a harder life than I will and my grandkids will have a harder life likely, but I think they're gonna fundamentally be happier people because I think culture is changing in a more positive direction. You know, one thing I can't help but notice in Korea when I'm there, it's like, okay, what do we do when the population is 5% what it is now? I guess they could import people. Uh, oh, can't import people from China because that's also collapsing. Can't import people from Japan because that's also collapsing. And then it's like, it's so weird to think that like less than a century ago, Japan like launched this invasion and like killed like, I don't know, millions of people, a million probably at least. I, I haven't looked at the numbers recently uh, to try to like culturally dominate these other cultures, but like they can't motivate their citizens to have kids to culturally dominate their right. neighbors. 
Like, yep. um, but that's what's cool is the people who win in the future. Uh, there's there's two ways you can win in the future, right? Uh, right. One is with love, which is fantastic. And, and I say love and not like sex or spamming kids, right? Because uh, you get that first 18 years of your kid's life to pitch your culture to them. But most of the world today, the kids get a choice to leave your culture if that pitch wasn't good. You know, it yep. used to be you could threaten kids. You know, oh, you'll be shunned. Everyone will hate you. You'll be tortured for eternity. But like those pitches don't really work well anymore in terms right. of keeping kids in your cultural group. You need to convince them that your cultural group is something additive to them. And again, I think this is why the Jewish population does so well here, uh, because that's the Jewish cultural pitch is, oh, yeah, it's better. Like just everything like your life will just work better if you follow these old systems. Um, and so those. Those, those work really well. And so that's one community. But then the other community is where I suspect China will eventually go, which is you get more authoritarian cultures, which either culturally are forcing people to have kids or through some sort of like forced impregnation system or like housewife's tale system, but what, handmaid's tale system, um, you know, are, are, are forcing. And, and that's one cultural solution, which is going to work. It's just not the direction right. I want to see the human future go. Exactly. Uh, well, there's this really funny quote. So the article, the Guardian did a profile of us and it had me saying that like, you know, if we don't fix this voluntarily, a handmaid's tale system, the groups that try that are going to be the groups that dominate. And, and that is the future of our species. And they said, that sounds an awful lot like a threat. And I'm like, are you like a child? Like, are you like, I'm like, don't touch the stove or it'll burn your hand. And the child's right. like, that sounds like a threat. Exactly. It's like, but, but you know, you got this infantilization of the yes. adult mind these days where people are not going through these cultural traditions that historically would have. And this is something I, I do want to touch on, which is cultural programming, yes. right? And we talk about this in one of our latest books, The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, which is humanity can be thought of as like an evolving firmware, which is our biological predilections. But on top of that evolving firmware sits an evolving software, which is our cultural and religious mimetic cluster. And a lot of people today, they think about memes as being predominantly the things that like infect an individual and then spread by getting that individual to infect other people. But yeah. historically, this wasn't the case. Historically, mimetic clusters survived by augmenting our biological fitness faster than biological evolution could act on us. That's how like multiple cultural groups like Jews and Muslims figured out like hand washing literally centuries before science did. And you can look at any long lasting mimetic cluster and you can see how it augmented our psychology, like co-evolved with it to fix some of the problems we have. So, uh, you know, you see arbitrary self-denial rituals, whether it's Passover or Ramadan or Lent or Feast of the First, you know, uh, you're seeing these across cultural groups. And now, just now, science and, and like the progressive culture is figuring out like, oh, I gotta go on my juice cleanse, I gotta fast, because it turns right. out that that has like positive uh, biological, but also, you know, I used to be a neuroscientist. It looks like it also, it's probably uh, the, the real core of these self-denial things, which are common throughout all these tradition, older traditions, uh, was was likely that they exercised the inhibitory pathways in our prefrontal cortex and like allowed us to shut down uh, intrusive thoughts and, and anxiety and stuff like that, which is why likely you see these cultures with much higher rates of happiness. You know, since Pew started recording, uh, the conservative cluster in America has always been happier than the progressive cluster. And it's because they're operating off of this like more intact rather than like jury rigged uh, code base that, that's sitting on top of them. The problem is, is that the viruses that are attacking this code base, which are sort of forming in the internet, are getting better and better every generation at eroding um, 
you know, their the, the, their protective immune system and and are peeling out more and more kids, leading to uh, more and more extreme reaction from these these communities in a way that's that's only going to lead to mm, not not positive things for the near future. Right, right. No, that, that makes sense. Well, you know, this is a lot of a black. This is a big black pill, but uh, where's the white pill on this? There definitely, I, I think there are definitely ways out. You know, because it is something that's in our mind at some level. Uh, that means there's probably something we could do about it. There, there's new ideas that could be thought of. There's there's interventions that we haven't thought of that we we could try to improve people's lives, the lives of their kids. So they are encouraged to have more children. Um, you know, we, we, and I think just the evidence of America having higher fertility in Western Europe tells me that there is there are cultural mm-hmm. forces that matter. Um, what do you think that looks like? What do you think like uh, a successfully kind of fending off kind of like some of the extremism that can come with the self-correcting fertility crisis we've got? Well, I mean, that is the white pill. The extremist communities are almost universally technophobic because they they tend towards traditionalism and they, and they tend towards um, you know, a, 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 a fear of change in many ways, right. um, which means that if you can, and, and this is really cool, uh, and this is what we really advocate for, is if you can, if, we, if our proselytization works, and it's not just our family, because, you know, I wouldn't be talking about this. People are like, oh, he wants his family to be the only one that, no, the reason I'm like shouting from the rooftops about this is I'm really afraid of the collapse in cultural diversity we're seeing right now. The reason right. I'm not saying the way to fix this is to be more like my family is because if that's the only way to fix this, that's a sad future. What I want is to see more cultural experimentation from technophilic groups that are okay with cultural pluralism, um, see these groups sort of form an intercultural alliance, and then that intercultural alliance be one of the factors that survives, one of the factions that survives into the future. Um, And I think it's really possible, you know, um, that we have a band of different groups that are What's really cool is, okay, yeah, like the urban monoculture that dominates our society that I think we call like wokeism more broadly, it's not working. Like you can look at the depression rates in kids. You can look at the suicide rates in kids. Like you can look at the fertility rates in in the people who more ascribe to that philosophy. It just functionally doesn't work. But what this means is we're at a stage now where we can experiment with new social technologies. And if you look at the previous dark ages, it's the people who leaned in to the new social technologies that were the groups that survived, not the groups that moved towards traditionalism. So you look at the collapse of the Roman Empire, yeah, many people, like there was an explosion in pagan mystery cults um, in many of the same communities that Christianity was spreading, like the Roman military and stuff like that. But what survived, it was the new experimental culture, the Christians, but not the Christians who were loosey-goosey hedonists, but the Christians who were like, okay, let's strap down, um, develop new social systems, develop a new social architecture, and create a new future world order. And uh, that is the community that I think we have the opportunity to to sort of... Um, create here, which is a new way that things can work. And given that we now finally recognize this cyclicality in terms of hedonism to collapse in terms of world cultures, um, we can hopefully within the next cycle create a never ending renaissance. And our cultural groups, the groups that are willing to have kids will have a massive over impact in terms of the way that they shape the future of humanity. 
You know, even if we do stay the minority of the human population on Earth, if we make up the majority of the technophilic populations, we are the ones who are going to colonize the rest of the galaxy, and we will be the predominant cultural group within the rest of humanity. And given that we are at this point where we can say, okay, what are the core tenets of this cultural group? And, and one of the core tenets is pluralism. We can also prevent this collapse in cultural diversity or have a, a monoculture take over humanity, which really scares me. I mean, right now we are seeing that with this sort of wokest group, which is trying to enforce its cultural values on everyone else. And, and as soon as it like infects a religious organization, one of the things I always point out is, you know, you scratch beneath the surface of a progressive Jewish uh, family or a progressive Catholic family or a progressive Unitarian Universalist family. And they may have different like traditions on the outside, but their views on gender and morality and the future of our species, they're all basically the same. You do the same thing with conservatives from those different traditions, you're gonna see vastly different traditions, right? And, and those, those aspects that differentiate between those traditions, that's what this monoculture wants to wipe out, you know, you know, shave off the hard edges. And I think that's what makes us special. That's what makes diversity meaningful. And so I'm really excited that, that maybe we can create an alliance of, of peoples who actually like pluralism and are okay with working with people who see the world differently than them. And I think that that's the core message of the pronatalist movement is we need to lean into pluralistic approaches that are resistant to fertility collapse. I love that. I love that. No, that's a, that's a great optimistic take there. Um, I, I want to carry us out there because I, I think that really wraps it well. Malcolm, uh, where can people find you? Where, where should we send people if they want to read more? I would love if they checked out our podcast or it's also on YouTube. It's called Based Camp. Um, with Malcolm and Simone. Uh, but we also wrote a series of books, the Pragmatist Guide series, where, I mean, the thesis of the books is we essentially tackle topics uh, the way the university system says that it tackles them with like data and evidence, but topics that the university system is often not no longer mature enough to tackle uh, unbiasedly, you know, so like sexuality, religion, relationships, governance. Um, and so uh, I think that could be really interesting to people. Uh, but also, uh, if they just want, you know, to hear people talking about controversial things, that's what we focus on with Basecamp. Controversial futurism. Love it. Love it. Good stuff. Awesome. Well, thanks, Malcolm. We really appreciate it. Hey, it's been great to be here. Thank you so much for your time. Definitely. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.